The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Well, good morning again. It is good to be with you. My name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here. If you are a guest or a visitor, welcome. We're glad that you're with us, and uh, if you are joining us, if you're new with us, uh, you're joining us in the midst of a sermon series looking at Jesus' kingdom parables. We've been focusing on these parables that are found in the Gospel of Matthew, and our attention has been really on these uh, parables that are in Matthew 13 over the last number of weeks. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew 13. Uh, This is the chapter where the majority of Jesus' kingdom parables are found. There are others that are coming. uh, In the uh, coming weeks, we will continue to see other parables in Matthew's gospel. But this morning, we're looking at the last of these kingdom parables in Matthew 13. And as you're turning in your Bibles, just a reminder what a parable is. A parable is a metaphor or a story that's based on a common experience that challenges our understanding of the way the world works or of God or of his kingdom, and it reveals to us a more biblical way, a more biblical understanding to his kingdom, to his world, to him. And so Jesus, in teaching us about his kingdom, has employed agricultural metaphors, right? We've heard about seed and soil, weed and wheats, Last week, we heard of metaphor of a treasure, right? The treasure of great value, so great that that we should sell everything we have to acquire the land to which the treasure is found. He's been giving us these metaphors to instruct us about his kingdom, that that his kingdom, it, it goes out, it spreads, it grows. Sometimes there's good amidst the bad, that there are bad that grow amongst the good. He's been telling us about this kingdom, And this morning he continues that, but now he uses a metaphor that that isn't agricultural, agricultural. it's not one of treasure, but it's still one that would have been common or a a metaphor that they would have experienced in the area of Galilee, and that of fishing. So if you would follow along, beginning in verse 47, Jesus says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. And as we come to it now, we ask that you would lead us and that you would teach us, that you would show us your ways so that we would follow it. Lord, we desire to be your people, to obey you and you alone. And so we ask that you would help us to do that even now as we come to your word. Open our eyes and soften our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I imagine that many of you remember uh, that 1993 movie starring Bill Murray, Groundhog Day. Maybe you remember it because you saw it in the theaters or because you rented it from Blockbuster. Do do y'all remember Blockbuster? 
kids, kids, ask your parents what a blockbuster was. But, um, but you know, or maybe you've been watching it recently. You're streaming it on one of your devices. But Groundhog Day is starring Bill Murray. He plays this character, Phil Connors, who is a meteorologist. And Phil is reliving the same day again and again and again. And again, and again, and again. We're actually not sure how many times he relives this day. People have studied the movie, I, I came to find out. And some have speculated that it's, it was over a course of years or, or months, or some even speculate 700 years he relived the same day. Again, and again, and again. <laughs> and no matter what happens in that day, whether he's in a car accident, whether he's arrested or fired from his job, whether he's electrocuted, when the next morning comes, it starts again. And the new day is relived. Well, initially, this is very disorienting for Phil. He's surprised, he's shocked, he doesn't understand why this day is recurring over and over again. And so he's disoriented, but after a few days of getting used to it, he, he wonders, he ponders, he asks a question aloud. What if there was no tomorrow? How would you answer that question? What if there was no tomorrow? Well, Phil, he's in a car driving with two other men while he asks this question, and one of the men pipes up and says, well, if there was no tomorrow, that would mean that there would be no consequences. We could do whatever we wanted. And so Phil, this is the first he's thought of this, he ponders what they said, and, and he repeats it, we could do whatever we want. And then he says very boldly, very brashly, I'm not going to live by their rules anymore. And then for a good portion of the movie, he doesn't. He goes on a, a hedonistic joyride. He robs the bank. He evades the police. He crashes his car. He gorges on every unhealthy food that the local diner has because there's no tomorrow. There's no threat of punishment. He can do whatever he wants. So what would you do if there were no tomorrow? How would you live today if there was no tomorrow? No consequences. No justice or judgment. It's an interesting question, isn't it? It's getting at what we truly believe is good and right. If there are no consequences for our actions, would we still do what is good and right? Or is it just the fear of justice, of judgment, of punishment, of accountability? Is that what causes us to do what is right? It's an interesting philosophical question, isn't it? And even if we were to consider it and take time and think about it, we know that at the end of the day, it is only philosophical and it is only theoretical because tomorrow is coming. There is a tomorrow. And so the better question, the better question isn't what would we do if there were no tomorrow? No, the better question is what should we do in light of tomorrow? Because there is a tomorrow. And I'm not just talking about October 18th, 2021. I'm not just talking about the literal tomorrow. I'm talking about the tomorrow to come. The tomorrow that Jesus speaks of in this parable in verse 14 when he says, So it will be at the end of the age. You see, Jesus in making this statement, the end of the age, he is invoking the tomorrow that will come. That there is a day coming when Jesus will return and the end of this age will come to an end and he will consummate his kingdom. 
See, that's what we're told throughout the New Testament. Jesus has lived and died and risen again. He ascended into heaven, but he doesn't remain in heaven. One day he will return, and in that day, every man, woman, and child will stand before him. There is that day coming. That tomorrow that Jesus speaks of, a future day. And when that future day comes, that future day will come with sorting. Sorting between bad fish and good fish. That's what Jesus said, right, in verses 47 through 48. That there is a future sorting to come. The kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So this image that Jesus is using would, have been, would not have been lost on his listeners, right? They didn't have to be fishermen in the little city of Galilee to know what a fisherman did. They would have seen the fishermen going out every day in their boats out onto the sea, and they would cast their nets into the water, these nets, they were drag nets. They would be drug along the side or the behind of the boat. They'd have floats on the top and weights on the bottom, and they would drive around, right? They would move around the sea, and they would gather as many fish as they could, and they would gather the fish indiscriminately until the net was filled. And then they'd pull the net into the boat, but their work wasn't done because then they'd have to go on to the land, and they'd have to start to sort out the fish, right? The good fish from the bad. The fish that they would save to eat themselves or to sell at the market and the fish that they would throw away. And they would determine this by length, size, kind, whether it was kosher or not. But they would separate them. They would sort them out. And Jesus says that the tomorrow that is coming, the end of the age, will bring this kind of sorting. He says in verses 49 through 50, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. We've heard this language before, haven't we? If you've been with us last number of weeks as we've been going through these parables, you've heard this because Jesus used the same phrase in reference to the wheat in the weeds. Remember just a few verses before, he said that, that the weeds, they will be gathered up and they will be cast into the fiery furnace. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's the same language to describe the judgment, the, the justice that will be administered in the end of the age. So why does Jesus repeat himself so quickly? I mean, did, have you thought about that? Like, why now? Why, why repeat this same phrase again? It would make sense if he was in another town because the people hadn't heard his teaching. Or, or maybe if it was many days or weeks or months after that initial teaching, right? Because people forget. But, but why now? Why so quickly after already saying this? I think clearly the answer is obvious that, that it so it wouldn't be missed. So that everyone would be sure that it's Jesus, not the Pharisees. Not the scribes, not the religious leaders of the day. It is Jesus who is saying that there is a coming judgment. He's repeating it because his hearers need to hear it. And friends, so do we. I mean, we like to think that our culture is one that doesn't like the idea of judgment and justice. But, you know, as I've thought about this, we actually really like judgment. We like judgment when it comes upon people we don't like. And when it comes upon those ideas that make our stomachs feel sick, 
right? We actually like judgment when it comes upon the evil and the wicked. I mean, did y'all check your news feeds this morning? The atrocities that are occurring in the, in the country of Haiti, right? Gangs that are bringing about violence that are actually have taken missionaries hostage, right? There is evil and wickedness in our world. And so we want judgment and justice in those times, don't we? And rightfully so. And so we look to God and we, we long for him, we hope for him, we desire that he would one day bring justice. And we look to him because we know that the justice that we are in need of, only he can bring. No, we're okay with judgment and justice, so long as it's not turned on us. See, that's where we start to actually feel very uncomfortable. That's where we don't like it, when we think that we could be held accountable for what we've said and what we've done and what we've thought. No, we don't like that kind of judgment. We don't like that kind of justice. We don't like that kind of accountability. I mean, this is why Phil got excited, right, when he thought he could do whatever he wants, that there's no consequences, that there was only today. But friends, tomorrow isn't just for other people. Tomorrow's for us. There is a tomorrow to come, a day when evil and righteous like fish will be sorted. And so the question we need to ask ourselves is, what kind of fish are we? You see, we're not the fishermen in the parable. We might like to think we are. Like, we're the fishermen who get to decide who are the good, who are the bad, who are in, who are out, who's evil, who's righteous. But we're not the fishermen in the parable. No, we are the fish. Jesus said the angels are the ones who will do the sorting, not us. And so are we good or bad? Evil or righteous? What even makes a righteous person? I mean, if you were to ask your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends, what, what makes a righteous person? And I'm sure you would hear all sorts of things, right? But all of them would be about behavior, wouldn't it? Right? We would hear things like a righteous person has integrity. A righteous person is truthful, right? She seeks the good of others. She uses her time and money and talents for good things. He treats others with dignity and respect. He goes to church, etc., etc., etc. But all of them are what? They're about what we do. And in the kingdom of the world, these things would count as righteousness. But do you know what these things ultimately are? These things are fish setting the standard for what a good or a bad fish is. But in the kingdom of heaven, it's not the fish who set the standard, it's the one who casts the net. It's the Lord. I mean, do you remember when Jesus was talking to the religious leaders in John 8? He was talking to the Pharisees and the scribes. They came out, and they were hearing his teaching, and so they're talking. And so there, the, the religious leaders, the scribes and Pharisees, they say to Jesus, we are the offspring of Abraham, and we've never been enslaved to anyone. Abraham is our father. We have one father, even God. In other words, what they were saying was, look at our pedigree, Jesus. We're descendants of Abraham. We've kept the law. Look how righteous we are. Do you remember how Jesus responded to them? You know what he didn't say? He didn't say, you're right. You guys are so righteous. You're right. You've kept the whole law. In fact, you did more than the law. The law wasn't even enough for you. You made extra laws that were even stricter, and you kept those. You guys are the most righteous people ever, right? That's not what he said, did he? 
And why didn't he say that to the religious leaders, to the Pharisees and to the scribes and to those who were keeping the law better than anyone else? Why didn't he say that? Because he knew Isaiah, that all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, a filthy rag. No, instead, what Jesus said to these religious leaders who were looking to their pedigree, to their actions, to find their righteousness, what he said to them was, if God were your father, you would love me. In other words, your righteousness isn't determined by your works because your works are tainted by sin. They are like filthy rags. Your righteousness isn't determined by what you do, but by whose you are. Your righteousness, if you were truly righteous, would mean that you love me. In the kingdom of heaven, the righteous are those who know they need a righteousness not of their own, not of themselves. Most of you know that uh, last Saturday, um, my family and I had a day that we weren't expecting when we awoke. Because when we woke up, we had every intention of uh, watching our kids play some soccer. Um, this is how we spend our Saturdays uh, at the soccer field. And so we went, and we went to Cole's game. And less than five minutes into Cole's game, Cole is chasing after another player who had the ball, and the player goes down, and Cole was too, he was, he was right behind him. He was doing what he was supposed to do, and he didn't have time to evade. And so he rolled over him and rolled over his arm and broke both bones in his arm. And we had to go to the hospital. And sitting in the ER, right beside him and Kat in that room, knowing that surgery was coming, knowing the pain that he was experiencing, knowing the breaks that were in his arm, knowing that pain was going to come, I felt completely helpless. There was nothing I could do for him. There was nothing I could do for him. I wanted to be able to fix his bones, to wave a magic wand. I wanted to be able to fix his bones. I wanted to take the pain away from him. I would have taken it upon myself if I could, but there was nothing that I could do. I was confronted by my helplessness to help him. I was confronted by our need of someone else to help us. And friends, the truth is, is that every second of every moment of every hour of every day, that is what we are, spiritually speaking. We are helpless people who cannot help ourselves. We are needy people needing someone else. What we are in need of is Christ's righteousness. That's what we are in need of. That what we are in need of is a righteousness not of our own. A righteousness that comes only through Christ. And apart from that righteousness, every one of us is a bad fish who will be thrown away. Every one of us is an evildoer who will experience God's judgment. But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that his righteousness he does give to his people. Because in the cross, when Jesus went to the cross and he took our sin upon himself, he then took his righteousness and imputed it to us. So that it is not our righteousness that we claim, but it is his. 
And so when we stand before the Lord at the end, when the end of the age comes, we stand not by our own works. We don't stand with our own pedigree, with our own righteousness, but we claim only the righteousness of Christ. And that is the difference between the righteous and the evil. That is the difference between the good and the bad. It is nothing in of ourselves, right? It is that hymn that we sing, right? Nothing in my hands I cling. I bring simply to your cross I cling. That is what we cling to, the righteousness of Christ. So what do we do with this? As we know and we wait for this future to come, when there will be a sorting, what do we do as we wait this future sorting? Will we share in the present? Look at the end of our passage. Jesus asks his disciples if they understand all that he has said, and they say yes, which is kind of funny if you think about it. Because in future chapters, we'll see that they don't really understand all that well. <laughs> but they believe, right? They believe what he has said. Even if they maybe fully don't understand, they believe. And so Jesus says in verse 52, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out his treasure, what is new and what is old. The w Greek word there for trained, it, it means discipled. The disciple of Christ is like the master who brings out a treasure, what is new and old. And almost all the commentators agree that the old and the new is speaking of the Old Testament and the new age that is dawned. The new age that we have been discipled into, the mystery of the kingdom of heaven. The things that Jesus has taught and declared to us. This is the treasure that has been given to us, the treasure of his kingdom. And what do we do with it? We share it with others. The master doesn't bring out his treasure for others to look at and for them to marvel and for them to go, how beautiful, how, how fortunate you are that you have been given such a great treasure. No, the master brings out his treasure and opens it up so he can share in the blessing of that treasure. And that's what we are to do. That those who have heard the gospel of God's kingdom have been discipled in his ways, have been warned of this future sorting, and have been given Christ's righteousness. This is not just for us. It's not for us to hold on to miserly, to, to put away, but it is a treasure that we are to share, to tell others of, to declare to others the kingdom of God, that the righteousness that they are in need of is found in Christ and Christ alone. That is the treasure of the kingdom. That by God's life and death and resurrection, by Christ's work on our behalf, our sins are forgiveness and his righteousness is given to you. Friends, that is what we declare. That is what we share. That is what we hold on to. Because there is a tomorrow that is coming. Now, I don't know what the literal tomorrow will bring with for us. Success and failure, joy and sadness, health and sickness, surely many, some of us will experience those things. I don't, I don't know what the literal tomorrow will bring, and, and I don't know when the future tomorrow will come. But I do know that when it comes, every person who has ever lived will stand before the Lord. And so what kind of fish are you? Well, friends, today, not tomorrow, today, look to Jesus. Today, put your faith in him. Today, trust in his righteousness. 
because it is only those who are righteous because of Christ that will stand before him and be welcomed into his kingdom. Look to him. Rest in his goodness. Trust in his righteousness. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have sent your son who's lived and died a perfect, he has lived a perfect life and he died in our stead and he has done that so that our sins would be forgiven, so that new life would come, so that his righteousness would be imputed to us and so we claim that for ourselves and we claim only Christ, holding on to his goodness and his grace. So Father, Father, open our eyes to that every day. Show us our need for a Savior. Show us our need for Jesus. And let us hold fast to his righteousness. We pray that you would help us to do that today and all of our days until that day when Jesus comes and we will dwell with him for all eternity. So move and work. Move in us and through us. And we ask that you would do this for your name's sake and for the good of your people. And all God's people said together, Amen.